phone here. Hi, everybody, and welcome to discuss today a big book study where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Nancy J, Sue L, Audrey N and Johan N. If you have any questions or concerns during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. Uh, please note that our speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the Q&A session which follows, that will not be recorded. We've put a link to the previous week's recordings in the chat function, and this week is week number 115. We ask that if you could please keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study, and also please turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from the screen for any reason. So we'll now turn over the meeting to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. Thank you so much. And you know, I say this a lot and I'll say it again. Man, I hope it's as absolutely stunning and gorgeous wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this, as it is here today. It's uh, starting to cool down here. It's only 88 degrees. And it is dry and gorgeous and wowee, wow, 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 wow. So I hope it's as beautiful wherever it is that you are. We are in the chapter, We Agnostics, and very few things will evoke the kind of visceral response, the kind of emotional response uh, as as when we talk about this chapter and God and things like that, because a lot of times we're going back to our childhood conceptions of God, or we're going back to a conception of God that was handed to us by someone else, usually parents, usually family, what have you. And so what we're going to ask you to do is to find, and if that God of your religion is what works for you, that's fantastic. But for a lot of people, it doesn't, and they keep struggling and struggling. And, and so we ask you to open your mind. We ask you to open your mind and just become willing to believe that there's just a power greater than yourself. You don't need to believe in God in any particular way. You don't need to not believe in God in any particular way. All we ask is that you be open-minded enough to say to yourself at the depths of your soul, my way is not working. My way is not getting me where I want to go. And if your way is working, then God bless you. And that's fantastic. But if it's not, we just ask that you open your heart and open your mind to the possibilities that there is a different way of a different way, a different way of conceiving of and a different way of identifying that higher power within your heart and within your soul, because that's what we're going to ask you to do. And we look at this chapter and it says, we agnostics. Now, what is an agnostic? A lot of people lump agnostics in with atheists. That is just not the case. An atheist is someone who believes that there is no religious deity. There is no religious deity in the world. And a believer believes that there is a religious deity. And then agnostic is someone, ag means without and gnostic means knowledge. Agnostic means without knowledge. They're just not sure. But what happens in many, many cases is this. We claim to be atheists when we are very angry at God. And truthfully, you cannot be angry at a being that does not exist. So in, by definition, by definition, it is impossible to be angry at something or someone that doesn't exist. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So the people that are angry at God are a little different from the atheists. Atheists believe that there is no religious deity. Believers believe that they are. Now, the agnostic isn't sure. We've covered that. We're not going to cover it anymore. But here's what we are going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about pockets 
of agnosticism. What does that mean? Well, I believe that God created puppies and kitties, and I believe that God created cute little animals that you know we see or whatever, or the sunset or the sunrise. I believe that God created all those things. But is that God in my heart, in my soul, is that God going to come into my life if sought? to help me with my food addiction and my finances and my love life and my work life and difficult people that I encounter at the job, in the church, in the synagogue, in the OA meetings or in my neighborhood or family? Is God going to come in and help me with those things? And so oftentimes we jump to a conclusion we jump to a conclusion and we blame God for things that are really the fault or not the fault, but they are really the doing. Let's work with that. Not fault, but doing. I misspoke. The doing of human beings who always had free choice. Here's what I'm talking about. Wars, slavery, the Holocaust, religious persecution, racial persecution, crimes. God didn't do those things. Human beings did those things. God cried too. When people were abusing or misusing or, or inflicting their will upon the lives of other human beings, I assure you that the God of my understanding was weeping tears too. So that we as human beings have free reign. We as human beings can choose to do the right thing or we can choose to do the self-seeking, selfish thing. We can do the evil thing, or we can do the, good, the right thing. And so God gets blamed for a lot of these crimes that he did not commit. He just did not commit these crimes. So what we have to do if we're going to move forward in our program of recovery, however that works for you, whatever that works for you, you and I have to find the willingness to believe. We don't have to believe. We have to be willing to believe that there is a power greater than ourselves. And as long as we're willing to believe that there is a power greater than ourselves, we are assured that we are on our way. What a nice guarantee that the big book gives me when it says, "Will it, all I need to be doing, I'll read it instead of paraphrasing it here. Here is what I'm saying. It's on page 47. It says in the middle of the page, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? And this is all that's required. It doesn't have to be the Muslim God, the Catholic God, the Protestant God, the Jewish God. It doesn't have to be the God of any, any specific flavor, religion, whatever you sect. It doesn't have to be. All I need to do is be willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself. Why do I need to believe that? I'll answer that question by going back to page 45 of the big book. And we are gonna start on page 51, but I just wanna, you know, as is my want, get us rolling with some stuff that is very, very important that kind of leads us to the reading. On page 45 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, in the middle of the page is the thesis line of the big book. What is the thesis line? It is the line or sentence which encapsulates the purpose or point of the entire work. And the point of this is on page 45, it says, well, that's exactly what this book is about. See, it's going to tell you what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power, capitalized, greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Notice it does not say that the main object of this book is to help you find 
uh, sobriety, or it doesn't say, it does not say that the main object of this book is to help you find a food plan that will work for you. It doesn't say those things. And if you look at step two, it says, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to what? To abstinence? No. To sobriety? No. To what? It came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And this sanity is very, very important. Now, I believe that God inspired the book and guided Bill. Bill wrote the steps. Bill wrote, Bill penned the book, except for the chapter two employers. This is a work of Bill Wilson's hand. Now, there were some other people that had influence on what he wrote, but most of it is really what he felt he wanted to say. And I believe that God guided him in every word, every punctuation. Now, why do I believe that? Bill was 43 years old with three and a half years of sobriety. He was 46 years old with three and a half years of sobriety. I have 23 years of abstinence. I'm 68 years old. I'm lucky I can knock out a coherent text message for the love of God. But he wrote one of the books that is the most important books ever written in the entire history of planet Earth. It is one of two books that I believe were absolutely God inspired. There are probably more, but he he wrote the he Bill Wilson. I don't believe wrote the book. He was not a spiritual giant. He was not someone versed in theology or versed in these things. But let's go back to step two because all these other things are just my opinion. I can't prove them in the big book. So let's stick to what we know. The main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Notice it doesn't say problems, plural, because no matter how strongly you work your program, you are going to have difficulties. And the book assures you that you're going to have these difficulties from the very beginning of the book to the very end. We talk about the low spots, the certain low spots and trials ahead. But what is my biggest problem? The problem isn't the food. That's a byproduct of the problem. The problem is the defects of character, which come from my demonic, destructive ego. And these defects of character, as they manifest, I have been tantruming at a world that I was uncomfortable with from the moment I was born. I have been uncomfortable in my surroundings. That's why I try to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, the actors in my own way, because I have a need to try to line up my exterior so that I will feel whole and feel good inside. And then along came a Reese's peanut butter cup. And I took a bite of it or an Oreo cookie or whatever that was for you. And all of a sudden, the magic happened. And I bit into this cookie. And for about nine seconds, the world was a beautiful, groovy, wonderful utopia. Wow. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't become addicted to that? But when 10 seconds passed and 15 seconds passed, the degradation, the humiliation, the shame and the guilt and the remorse and the hideous, hideous hatred of myself settled down because when that physical allergy manifested itself and I was eating more than I had intended to, I hated myself even more if such a thing could be imagined. This is not just a disease of eating and not eating, of puking and exercising. It's a disease of self-loathing. It's a disease of having an unfounded, unrealistic vision of ourselves as being either better than others or not as good as others. 
It is the shame and the guilt that we feel. Now, most human beings go through that, but most human beings don't eat themselves or starve themselves into oblivion as the result of these feelings. That is the biggest difference. So my problem isn't the food. My problem is the defects of character, which stem from a demonic, destructive ego. Food was never the problem. Food became the solution to the problem. Food solved my problem. It made everything okay. And when the will to live was not there within my soul, when I wanted to die a lot more than I wanted to live, and when I was ashamed to leave the house because I became an object of ridicule, when the humanity inside my heart and soul was torn from me because of how people treated me for being so morbidly obese, the only thing I knew to turn to was the one thing that had created the maelstrom of a problem from the very beginning. The sickness that I ate Oreo cookies in and Chips Ahoy cookies in was born out of the depths of ego. And I didn't know what else to do but eat more Chips Ahoy, more Oreo cookies and more chocolate because the only thing that made the pain go away for even one second was the very thing that created the problem in the first place. My ego knew no other solution but the food. Food became the solution. Food became the problem at the same time. We didn't fit into a world and we tantrumed and tantrumed and tantrumed with bakery boxes and bags and knives and forks, shoving food too hot into our mouth and burning our mouth, eating frozen food, eating food that wasn't fit for a dog, eating food that no one should have eaten. It was spoiled. It had been thrown in the garbage. There was detergent thrown on it. And yet we picked it out of the garbage, washed it off with water and ate it anyway. We are not goats. We are not goats. We're not billy goats. We are human beings. And sanity means we treat ourselves and others as human beings. So sanity is much more open-ended, much higher ceilinged than abstinence or sobriety. Sanity means I don't hang around with people that are toxic to me. Sanity means that I say yes when I mean yes and no when I mean no. Sanity means that I treat myself as the friend that I've always needed from the day I was born. Sanity means that I don't go to sleep worried, shuddering about what somebody thinks of me. I want people to like me, I truly do. And my ego still looks, oh, what's the number? How many people are we getting? Oh, we're at 133. I hope we hit 150. You know, whether we do or whether we don't, it's, it's really okay. Because I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And whoever comes, comes. But there's that part of my ego that says, oh, my God, we're going down in our numbers. Oh, my God, what am I doing wrong? I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. So my ego has been driving this madness into me from day one of life. And sanity is much more open-ended and all-inclusive of other things besides the food. Let's go to page 51 with all that in mind. And as you're going to page 51, I'm going to remind you guys that the OA birthday is coming up in January, the 13th, 14th, and 15th. Please be there for yourself. Don't be there for me or for the LA Inner Group or whoever. Come for yourself. And I'm going to be in White Plains, New York, the 9th, 10th, and 11th of December. And I hope that any of you that can make it out to New York, it's kind of an icky time to be in bad weather, but you know, it is what it is. But the bottom line is it's the 9th, 10th, and 11th of uh, 
of uh, December and somebody smarter than me is going to put something in the chat about registering. And if you're registering for the OA birthday, make sure you're, well, the registration doesn't begin till this, till October 15th, but make sure you register. If you're registering your own hotel, it's the LAX Hilton. There's lots of Hiltons in Los Angeles. You want to be staying at the LAX Hilton. Okay. Page 51, we asked ourselves this, are not some of us just as biased and unreasonable about the realm of the spirit as were the ancients about the realm of the material? And we're talking about Galileo and we're talking about all these other various people. Galileo believed for the first time that we know of in the world that it was not the sun that revolved around the earth. It was not the planets that revolved around the earth, but it was the earth that revolved around the sun. And they almost put him to death. They excommunicated him, I believe. He died a laughingstock because he held on to his beliefs that it was the earth that indeed rotated around the sun. And we know today that he was 100% correct. But at the time, at the time, it sounded like heresy for people to suggest that the earth was not the center of the universe, that there must be something wrong with you if you don't think that earth is the center of the greater universe. And he held on to his uh, those beliefs. And how many of us uh, are open to new ideas. How many of us need to open up our minds just a bit to say, I'm going to be open to a new way of doing things because my way just does not work. And if it works, that's great. But if it doesn't, then it's time to open the window and let in some fresh air. American newspapers were afraid to print an account of the Wright brothers' first successful flight at Kitty Hawk. Had not all efforts at flight failed before? Did not Professor Langley's flying machine go to the bottom of the Potomac River? Was it not true that the best mathematical minds had proven man could never fly? Had not people said God had reserved this privilege to the birds? Only 30 years later, the conquest of the air was almost an old story and airplane travel was in full swing. And so we have a new idea that man can get in a contraption and fly. I'm going to go to the airport in a couple of weeks because I'm going to Nashville and I'm going to be doing this from a phone. I'm doing it on a computer now, but I don't have a laptop, so I can't bring it with me. I have a desktop. They're much easier to see for me as a desktop than a laptop. But anyway, uh, I'm going to be doing this by phone for a couple of weeks because I'm going to be in Nashville, Tennessee, and then I'm going to be in Chicago, Illinois, which is my home, which is my birthplace. But the bottom line is, is that I don't even think twice about getting on an airplane. You, when I get to the airport, trust me, it's going to be mucho crowded. <laughs> it's going to be very, very crowded. And the chances of there being empty seats on any of these flights is almost zero. Because when was the last time you flew on a plane that had empty seats? I know I haven't flown on one with empty seats in a very long time. And I fly more than most people do. But I don't even think about it. And so we have these ideas of what is and what isn't. And sometimes we have to let down our guard. We have to let down our ego and let some fresh air in. Page 52, near the top of the page. But in most fields, our generation has witnessed complete liberation of our thinking. Look at the phone that you have in your pocket or your purse. If somebody would have told you 30 years ago that they're going to have a device that, yeah, that will navigate your, your car ride, it'll tell you where to turn and where to do this and where to do that. Yesterday, I went and saw a friend and I, need, I had never been there before. And this friend lives in Mesa. So I went to Mesa 
And I hadn't been in Mesa for a long time. And this part of Mesa, I've never been to. So I, I typed in the address and I hit, it said the button, get directions. I hit the button. And, you know, I don't always think about this, but what an amazing thing. What an amazing thing. I've said this before in this forum, but every Friday, if you go on Shea Boulevard in Scottsdale, you go on this street here that's one block from my house, you're going to see something that will blow your mind. Cars are going to be driving down the street and there's no one inside. It says on the side of the car, Google experimental vehicle. And on the back of it, it says, this car powered by Google. And it's a car just like the one you drive. And it's got a big thing. It looks like a stack of pancakes on the, on the roof. They're gray. There's a big one, a smaller one, a smaller one. And on the top of the, the smallest little pancake there, there's an antenna that goes up. And on the front and the back of the vehicle, there are littler antennas that are, that are, I guess, getting a signal from the satellite. And the car stops when there's a red light and it goes when there are green light and it turns and it does all the things you do in your car and there's no one inside. First time I saw it, second, maybe the first five, six times I saw it, I was freaking out. Like, what the hell? There's no one in that car. What the heck's going on here? But pretty soon, you'll get in a car. Maybe it'll be for an Uber. Maybe it'll be a taxi. Maybe you'll get in a car and go to your destination, and there will not be a driver. That will happen. I don't know if it's going to be in our lifetime. I don't know how quickly they can do that. But they're going to do that, and you're going to get in the car, and no one will be driving it. That means there'll be no more human error when it comes to accidents. Nobody will fall asleep at the wheel. Nobody will be, you know, DWI. There won't be, they will eliminate human error in traffic. Won't that be exciting? And yet, I don't think there's any of us right now that have a problem accepting that because look at what we've seen. Look at our telephones. Look at what they can do. If somebody would have told you 30 years ago, 35 years ago, one day you'll have a device in your pocket or your hand that does this, this, and this, and keeps time, and it's your alarm clock. I've got my music on here. I've got movies on here. I've got TV shows on here. I got all kinds of stuff on here that are mind blowing. I can be on the plane watching a movie, watching TV shows right here on my phone. You would have said that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Yet here it is. It's reality. Here it is. So we have no problem accepting this because after all, Google and Apple and Microsoft, you know, they have earned our credibility. They've earned our trust when it comes to this stuff. We have to open up our minds. We have to open up our minds or we're going to die. Because if we keep holding on to ideas about a higher power that do not work for us, it's going to be very hard, if not impossible, to recover from this disease. Very, very difficult or impossible to recover. And that's a warning that we must open up our minds. We must open up our hearts. We must open up our psyches because what we're doing in many cases is not working. One of the things I hear all the time is I'm having trouble with this God thing. It's as you see it, as you believe. Would you be willing to believe in a power greater than yourself that was of your choosing, your, your description that fits into the mold that you set forth? And this is your opportunity to do it, is to, is to have that power greater than yourself that you call whatever you want to call it.
doesn't have to be God. It doesn't have to be Mortimer. It doesn't have to be Sassafras. It doesn't have to be any name you don't like. Call it what you will, describe it as you will, and move forward from there. Let's continue. Show any longshoreman a Sunday supplement describing a proposal to explore the moon by means of a rocket, and he will say, I bet they do it, maybe not so long either. Now, this book was written in 37 and 38 and 39, and it was published on April the 10th, 1939. 1939 to 1969 is 30 years. I'm no whiz at math. That's why I don't allow math questions in the Q&A. I'm terrible at math, but I know that's 30 years. 30 years and a couple of months after this book was printed, man landed on the moon in July of 1969. <sighs> Pretty amazing stuff when you think about it. Pretty amazing stuff. 30 years and a couple of months after this book was published, man landed on the moon in July of 1969. Mind-blowing, isn't it? But it's reality. And we were able to watch man landing on the moon because they planted television cameras on the equipment. What an unbelievable thing. Mind-blowing in 1939 almost passe in 1969, and ancient history in 2022. My father was an immigrant to this country. He came here under horrifically horrible conditions of murder and mayhem. He was the sole survivor of a family of 40 who was obliterated off the face of the earth. And he had a different view of things than I. I was born in this country and I would put him in the car sometimes and I would take him up. I lived in Chicago. So the Wisconsin border is not that far. And many of you have heard me tell this story before. We would go over where it says, you are leaving Illinois. And then it'll say, welcome to Wisconsin, America's dairy land. And it'll say, uh, at that time, it was Thompson. We had a Governor Thompson in Illinois, but they had Tommy Thompson up in uh, Wisconsin. But it'll say, whatever governor, the governor welcomes you to Wisconsin, America's dairy land. And he would cry out of joy. And he would, the tears would be rolling down his face. And he'd say, what a country. What a country. Now, what was he so excited about? What impressed him about that? Because in his life, you don't go from one state to another without papers, without a checkpoint, without the military approving of your travel. What are you doing here? Why are you here? What is your purpose? What is your identity? Who are you? Why are you here? And if you don't have the right answers or the right papers, you don't get through. So he was in awe of the amazing, amazing country that he was in. He couldn't believe it. You can go from Illinois to Wisconsin and you don't need papers and you don't have to go through a checkpoint. And then we would go up there and we'd get a little lunch or something and I'd take him back and it would say, you are leaving Wisconsin. And it would say, welcome to Illinois. Richard Ogilvie, governor or Tom, whoever the governor was at the time, and he would start this same process again. What a country, what a country, what a country. I can't believe this country. You can just go from Wisconsin. He couldn't say Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And he'd say, you can go to Wisconsin, to Illinois, and you don't need papers. There's no checkpoint. There's no military guards. There's nothing. You could just go all day, one to the other, one to the other state, and nobody can say anything about it. Now, you Americans take that for granted. We take that for granted. I'm an American. I don't, I'm going to Tennessee. I don't, they don't, I don't have a reason to go there. I'm going to a wedding, but I don't have papers. I don't have to have a reason. I can just go. 
All American Airlines cares about is, did you pay your fare to get on the plane? And if you paid your fare to get on the plane, go ahead, go wherever to hell. As long as you got those green stamps, we'll take you wherever you want to go. But in his world, that's not true. In his life, his world, you can't do that. So these are some, but not all of the things that we need to look at and say, gosh, I, I need a little fresh air here. I need a little fresh air. And that's so important. Let's continue. Is, is, is not our age characterized by the ease with which we discard old ideas for new? by the complete readiness with which we throw away the theory or gadget, which does not work for something new, which does. If it's not working, throw it out. And if it is working, hang on to it. We had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply our human powers, this same readiness to change our point of view. We were having trouble with personal relationships. That's certainly true for me. Now, these are called the bedevilments. The bedevilment is a something that harms you, and it is born out of your defects of character, your illness. But that's really another word for what? It's another word for ego. We were having trouble with our personal relationships. I was either too dependent on the people, I looked up to people, and I looked down at people, but I couldn't look at people. And one of the things that this program has taught me to do over the years that I've been in recovery is neither look down at another human being nor up to another human being in awe, but to look at another human being. And I sincerely see from the bottom of my heart that that is what you are, is a human being. You are a human being. No better, no worse, just different. So we were having trouble with our personal relationships. We wanted to either control the people in our environment or they, we wanted them to take care of us in a way that is just not natural. And that's not okay for us to do. They are just other people. We couldn't control our emotional natures. I couldn't control my fear. I couldn't control my social anxiety. I couldn't control that I feared the world that I lived in. I lived like a fugitive because I was afraid of people. I was afraid of everything and everywhere that I went. I was an object of ridicule. Why wouldn't I be scared to death? I was afraid, I was afraid of everything and everyone. Weddings like I'm going to. They would scare the crap out of me or, or, or a gathering of people. I'd be scared to death because I know eventually I'm going to run into people that are going to make fun of my weight, that are going to criticize me and give me hell for how much I weigh, how much I'm eating, what I'm doing, whatever that is. I feared it because I couldn't make a living, which we're going to get to in a second. And I didn't have the money to function in the world. To be a self-sustaining adult is one of the greatest joys I've ever experienced in my entire life. Every month at the end of the month, we're, we've only got six more days. When I've paid all my bills for the month of September, I write in my journal, all bills that came in were paid in full, paid on time. And I say, thank you, God, from the bottom of my heart. Let's continue. We were a prey to misery and depression. Of course, I hated myself. I hated the way I looked. I couldn't walk. I couldn't sit. I couldn't stand. I couldn't fit in a car. I couldn't get in a car. I couldn't get out of a car. I looked terrible. I ached. I was in such pain, physical pain, emotional pain, loneliness. I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years old. I have always struggled in that area. Many of you have heard me talk about that. It's one of the most beautiful areas of life. And yet I have struggled in it from day one. Many of us have struggles in every area. 
You, what did uh, the famous entertainer, Rob Williams, he does a joke. Hey, I know somebody that's going through hell. And the person says, who's that? And he says, everyone. Every person here is going through challenges and fears and anger. Every single one of us. And if you're looking at the little Hollywood squares of some faces here and you see young, beautiful faces or you see older faces, it doesn't matter whether they're old or young. It doesn't matter whether they're male or female. It doesn't matter whether they're black or white. It doesn't matter whether they're whatever they are. They are going through challenges in their life that are extremely difficult for them. This is a tough life. I don't know how to get through this life without God's help. I don't know how to do that. Of my own, of my own resources, I don't know how to negotiate the ups and downs of life. Let's continue. We couldn't make a living. I certainly couldn't. Who was going to hire me at that weight? I was a walking sideshow. I was a walking sideshow. Many of you don't remember carnivals and sideshow, and they had the fat woman and the fat man and the tall man and the short man and the gorilla man and the cat man, or whatever. You're too young. You don't remember that stuff. You'll have to Google it, and that's fine. But when I was a little boy, they'd have these carnivals come through, and they'd always have the freak shows. And they'd have the sideshow. Here he is, the man who can eat fire. Here he is, the man who can eat, swallow a sword or whatever that is. I was a walking sideshow. And so I couldn't make a living. I was terrible at what I did. I was selling on the phone, which I hated. I still do. I still do it. I hate it still. But I had to do what I had to do and my bills are paid. We had a feeling of uselessness. I sure did. I had a feeling of complete uselessness. I had no reason to get up in the morning and I didn't want to. We were full of fear. Fear ruled me and dominated me at every step of the way. Fear of people, fear of uncertainty, fear of today, fear of tomorrow, fear of yesterday. Fear dominated my life. I was afraid not to eat because I didn't want to feel that hunger. I didn't want to feel that withdrawal. And when I went through withdrawals during my various attempts at recovery, they were very, very painful. And I did not want to feel them again. So rather than for the first while, rather than just keep enduring the discomfort of the, with the, of the withdrawal, I knew I'd get it out eventually. I picked up pistachio nuts. I picked up Oreo cookies. I picked up McDonald's milkshakes because I couldn't bear the feeling of the withdrawal. But when I stood in there and I asked God for help and God came to me through other people, I was able 23 years ago to endure the pain of the withdrawal. And I haven't found it necessary to compulsively overeat in over 23 years. New recovery does suck the wazoo. New recovery is difficult. New recovery hurts. New recovery sucks because those withdrawal pains are painful. Sugar is a hell of a substance. And when you withdraw from it, it is going to hurt. It's going to hurt, but you're not going to die if you reach out and you do the things you need to do. Let's continue. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. I wanted to be the world-renowned authority on every subject, and I was anything but. I was anything but the world-renowned authority on any subject, and I couldn't help anybody. Today, I'm very, very lucky. I have people tell me very effusive in very effusive language. They tell me in person, they tell me on the phone, or they'll tell me in an email or a text, and they'll say, thank you very much. I was listening to your podcast. You don't know me. My name is so-and-so. And, -so, and uh, I was listening to your podcast and I found it very, very helpful. I happen to be going through this, this, and this. And um, 
I I found your podcast very helpful. And that's very nice. That's very, very nice. I have a reason to get up in the morning. I have jobs to do. I am a sponsor. I am a sponsee. I attend meetings. Normally I attend three meetings a day. I attend two hours of a vision for you Monday through Friday. And I will tune into a special edition tomorrow, Sunday. And then I attend the Scottsdale meetings, big book meetings uh, every day of the week. So I do that. And those are at 5.30 Arizona time, 5.30 Pacific time now. Was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight? Of course it was. And this is the bedevilments. This paragraph is like the anti-promises. The promises tell you what you can expect if you do work the program. And the bedevilments describe my life when I'm not working the program. That I'm full of fear. That I can't make a living. That I can't, I can't interact with people. That this and that. These are the anti-promises. When we saw others, I'm on page 52 toward the bottom. When we saw others solve their problems by a simple reliance upon the spirit of the universe, capitalized, that means God, as you understand God, we had to stop doubting the power of God. If I don't need any more proof that there is a God, here is all the proof that I will ever need. There are people in this world and they are afflicted like me with a fatal permanent and progressive disease of compulsive overeating. They are alcoholics, gamblers, sex addicts, love and romance addicts. They are drug addicts, whatever they may, shopping addicts, whatever they may be. And there are millions and millions of people that are in recovery today that have lived to tell their story. They speak and understand the language of the heart. They are living testimony that there is a God and it is not me. No greater testimony. When I go to Los Angeles for the birthday, I have a friend and she lives in Colorado. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. She is beautiful inside, beautiful outside. And I get in Wednesday night. She usually gets in Thursday morning. But in the early morning, she loves to go to the beach in California. And she packs people in cars and gets other people to drive out to the beach in California. And they go and they do their morning 11th step on the beach in, I believe, Santa Monica or Los Angeles. I think they go to Santa Monica. And she comes back with these people and the sun came up over the Pacific, which isn't really true, but you, you get the idea. The sun comes up and there it is and blah, blah, blah. And they're doing... And they come back and they say, what a miracle, what a miracle. We saw the sun and the water and the sand. And this one did his 11th step. And I, what a miracle. And those are great things. Those are wonderful, wonderful things. I love that she gets that excited and they all get excited about it. What is the real miracle there in Los Angeles? See, a miracle is defined as something to which there is no common sense or scientific explanation. There is a scientific explanation as to why you eventually see the sun in the morning in Los Angeles. And that is the earth is rotating around and eventually there's the sun. The sun does not come up over the water. I live along Lake Michigan. The sun doesn't come up and go down over the water. It just doesn't. The earth is what's moving. But let's leave that aside for right now. And let's take a look at what's happening in that LAX Hilton that is far more unbelievable 
than the sun coming up or going down or the beach or the sand or anything or the birds. What is the real miracle there, guys? There are hundreds of compulsive overeaters in the lobby of that hotel that are afflicted with a, a state of mind and body that compels them to eat against their will or starve themselves against their will or exercise themselves into oblivion or laxative abuse into oblivion or they are vomiting themselves into oblivion and they are in recovery. They are not doing that and they are happy in their release. That's the miracle. That's the miracle of it. The miracle is right in front of you that there are people with an addiction. They're not practicing their addiction and they are happy and free and they're willing to do whatever it takes to help another person. That in their tempestuous selfishness and self-involvement that this disease breeds, we are willing to go out of our way to help somebody. That's the miracle. That's the show. Don't miss that. You may not be able to get to Santa Monica, California every day to see the sun. It, you may not be able to, um, to, to, to do any of that. But you can look at a meeting and look at some, someone in recovery and say to yourself, this person is a living, breathing miracle. And one of those people, I hope, is going to be you. Because this is not that hard to achieve. This is not that difficult. If I can do it, you can do it. All it takes is the working of the steps and it takes taking action after action after action after action that you do not yet believe in, that you do not want to take, that, but you do it anyway because what you're doing is not working. What did Clancy Imaslin tell us? When one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic so as to level out their feeling of difference and the second person starts taking action after action that they do not yet believe in, this is the moment that recovery can take place. Let's continue and let's try to finish one, maybe two more paragraphs at the most. We had to stop doubting the power of God. Our ideas did not work, but the God idea did. Very important sentence. The Wright brothers' almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. Why were they successful? Because they were doggedly in pursuit. They were absolutely certain that they could do this, and they did it. They were bicycle people from Dayton, Ohio. They had a bicycle shop where they sold and repaired bicycles. And they invented the first airplane that flew. The 20th century, according to Scott Peck, very famous philosopher, the 20th century will ultimately be remembered for three things. It will be remembered for the Wright brothers' first flight at Kitty Hawk. It will be remembered for the atomic computer age culminated by man's landing on the moon. And it will be remembered for the development of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those are the three events that the 20th century will ultimately be remembered for. The atomic computer age, man's flight, and the 12 steps. 
that 10,000 years from now, this is what people will look back on the 20th century and they will call out those three events as being events that changed the world. Let's continue. Without that, nothing could have happened. In other words, they had this idea that this would work. And Bill Wilson was listening to Ebby, even though he was drunk. Bill was drunk, Ebby was sober. And he says, I saw, I felt, I believed. I saw what? Recovery. Bill Wilson had been hospitalized twice before then, and he saw heavy drinkers, moderate drinkers, and alcoholics not drinking, but he had never seen anybody in recovery. What's the difference? A person who's not drinking is a dry drunk. They're miserable. They're not drinking, but they're freaking miserable. Miserable about it. Bill saw that Ebby was not only not drinking, but he was happy in his release. I saw, I felt, what did he feel? Hope. Because if Ebby could recover, if Ebby could be sober, maybe he could too. I believe. What did he believe? That God could and would if he were sought. And it was at this moment I saw, I, I saw, I felt, I believe. It was at this moment in time that the message that Ebby was delivering to Bill was received. It was at this moment in time that the world would never be the same. Ebby didn't know the problem of alcoholism, but he had a solution that he got from the Oxford group. Ebby didn't know the problem. Bill knew the problem, but he didn't have a solution for it. Dr. Silkworth didn't have a solution for alcoholism. I know he writes in his opinion that a psychic change and blah, blah. Those are other words for spiritual awakening. But Dr. Silkworth wrote that in 1939. In 1934, at the end of 1934, Dr. Silkworth had no idea that there was a solution to alcoholism. He had no, no clue, no clue at all that there was a solution. So in Bill Wilson, the problem came together and the solution came together and you have the confluence. What is a confluence? When two rivers meet to form a more powerful river, that's called the confluence. And Bill Wilson was that point that where the solution met the problem. And the world has never been the same. Thank you, God. Let's continue. We agnostics and atheists were sticking to the idea that self-sufficiency would solve our problems. You see, this self-sufficiency is taught to us in Western culture from the time we are children. I don't care whether you're a man or a woman or you're black or you're white or you're green or you're yellow or you're tall or you're short or you're straight or you're gay or you're Jew or Gentile or Muslim or Buddhist. I don't care who you are. You are taught in Western culture about the little engine that could. The little engine that could. The little engine that could is very parallel to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They were brought in against insurmountable odds and they accomplished a goal, a job, because they believed that they could. And this kind of thinking of, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, has to be smashed in us because without help, we, without help, it is too much for us. May you find him now. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. May you find that help now. So this problem of your addiction is not surmountable on discipline or self-knowledge at any level. It is not going to happen. C, that no human, B, that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism on page 60. Money won't do it. Having this guy stop picking his nose won't do it. This guy not drinking won't do it. That no matter what happens in your external, and you could tell yourself all the booby mindsets that you want about if this guy wouldn't nag me or if that gal would just do this, I wouldn't eat so much. It's all horse hockey. It's horse hockey. If you have this disease, it is not going to curtail because of external conditions. 
You have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. Self-sufficiency here will kill you. When others showed us that the God sufficiency worked with them, we began to feel like those who had insisted the rights would never fly. Now, in summation of today, we see that the disease of compulsive overeating does more than affect our waistline or our weight or our consumption or lack of consumption of the food. It affects how we think and how we feel and, and, and the self-hatred and so on that goes on. These are things in the bedevilments that have nothing to do with the consumption of food, and yet they have everything to do with the consumption of food. Let me just write this down, and then we're going to talk for a minute, and I'm going to turn it over. Hold on just a second. I'm writing down page 53. Logic is great stuff. Okay, now, before I turn it over, I want you to please consider as seriously as you can coming to the birthday. And if you can come to New York, 9th, 10th, and 11th of December. If you get in on the 8th, I think they're going to take an excursion up to Stepping Stones, which is where Bill and Lois live. I've been there twice, but it's a, it's quite a quite a, a adventure. It's just a wonderful thing. You'll get to see uh, lots of stuff. Uh, you'll get to see just tremendous, tremendous stuff. And um, Oh, there's Bill's writing room, his little sort of like a shack. They used to call it the shack. And there's a name for it that I can't think of right now. I think it's um, not what's up or something like that, but um, there's a name for it. And I'll think it's of it right after. Wits End. Wits End. Thank you very much. Wits End. Thanks, Nancy. Wits End. That's the name of it. And you should, you get to sit at Bill's desk and see all the cigarette burns in the desk. Okay. Birthday, December. Now, Today's Michal's birthday also. Maybe we'll sing happy birthday to her later. I don't know. But Michal is here and I believe it's, I know it's her birthday today. And of course, I don't know what happened to Roz with that USC thing.